Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original. How can you separate two grieving parents like that when you know that there's something wrong? You just can't. So I rang anyway and I said, look, um, I, I would like to stay with my partner. And she said, oh, well, he can't come into the waiting room because of, you know, space constraints. And I said, absolutely fine. Totally understand. Um, I'm going to wait in the car park, though, with them and you can call me in when you're ready. OK. And she said, sorry, no, I can't do that. And I just I nearly broke down at this point. And I said, do you mind explaining why? And she said, well, just in the interest of time management, we prefer people to wait in the waiting rooms alone. Um, and then, you know, you can, your partner can come in, but we wait. We would like you to wait alone so that we're not you know, in time management. And I just like that phrase will never leave me. Like I said to her on the phone, my baby's gone. And in the interest of time management, I was being separated from the father of my child, the person that I love, the only person that I feel safe with. And I just couldn't get over it. Now, ordinarily I'd be a bit more outspoken, but I was broken at this point and I, I physically could not. And I just said, fine. And I hung up. I just... I couldn't. Hi, folks, and welcome to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy in the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Alison Curtis, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Sue Murphy and Suzanne Kane today. It's a podcast inspired by an Instagram post, which asked whether anyone out there could tell the real stories of those who have been affected by COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. And we definitely will. Hopefully we can give people across the country the right space to share their own experiences and to talk about something that definitely should not be a taboo. These stories deserve to be shouted and not whispered. So we're going to hear someone each week who's been affected differently from women who've apparently had normal births on their own to partners and healthcare workers as well. So my story is 10 years old now, but I feel that if I had had my daughter Joan in the last 18 months, I'm not exactly sure what would have happened to me because going into the pregnancy, I would have had a lovely sense of acute health anxiety. So I would have really wanted my partner to be there. And then what happened with Joan was a critical emergency situation. And it happened so fast that if it had been a situation where my husband Tony was waiting in the car park, he wouldn't have been there for the birth. So I had preeclampsia, an abruption, which is extremely rare, like to be different, hemorrhage, and they had to have an emergency C-section. So I was just thinking when we knew we were going to do this podcast, what who would have actually held Joan if Tony hadn't been there? That's what I was thinking about because you know I wasn't able to hold her for an hour and a half or more, and then I went into high dependency and she needed to be cared for, you know, with the people in the rotunda. But it's just that moment, that instant that they come into the world. Like, if you are having had that situation happen in the last 18 months, I just it's scary who would have held her. That's the one thing I kept thinking about knowing we were going to do this. Uh, so for me, my my take on it is that I was the pandemic pregnancy um, and that I had the pandemic baby and I uh, found out I was pregnant right when everything shut down so the world stopped just all of a sudden everything stopped and even that the only place that was open was the pharmacy but you took queue to get into a pharmacy um, so even that like going to try and get a pregnancy test was mm. like you, you know you couldn't even go and get a pregnancy test it was like to try and get to a pharmacy to get in you to kind of answer the questions to get in that you're trying to be like uh, can I can't I um and I was coming off the back uh I lost a baby in December uh just before that and I had to go in and have an ERPC which the baby has to be removed 
And I didn't realize at the time when I was going in that morning to have the operation um, because I'd gone in by myself for the for the scan because I was like, this is our third baby. You know, this is no big deal. I can do this by myself. Um, and when they started to scan, we heard the words that you know, I heard the words that there was no heartbeat. And then all of a sudden it was talk of you need to come in and we have to do a surgery. And it's not as straightforward as you're just losing a baby. There was no bleeding or anything like that. And when I came back from surgery, I opened my eyes and they rolled me to my room and I looked up. My husband was standing with a cup of coffee and it was the first time in my life that I I actually said out loud how much I needed him. I was like, I didn't realize I needed you here until I saw you because I and he was like, it is OK. We will be OK. And I felt at that point like how lost I was. Mm. And another baby for us was just not going to happen. I just couldn't think about it. But I found myself in the middle of the pandemic with no preg- with no period and going, God, could I be? Mm. But this was a short-term snow situation with the, with the pandemic. So I'm like, this is two weeks. Like everything will open back up. But having to drive to the coom at, at what turned out to be seven and a half, eight weeks pregnant by myself and no one on the roads and going in, going, am I going to be told again there's no heartbeat? We were like we had we had no idea at that point what women around the country were facing into because we were like this is really short term and we're all doing the very best that we can to try and keep everybody yeah. as safe as we possibly could. I was really lucky because I got in for an early scan, heartbeat was there, brought in two weeks again, heartbeat was still there, and I got to my twelve week mark. I was terrified. I didn't tell anybody I was pregnant till I was nearly eighteen weeks mm. because I I felt I couldn't put anybody through the heartbreak because I got past the 12 week mark the last time I was like sure we're you know we're golden we're great um and then we navigated it it got to the point where like at those 18 weeks and going in for the big scan that was the first time I put up on social media I was like I'm sitting by myself waiting to go in for the big scan I miss my husband and we're told as women and I know you would have felt this going in to have Joan and so I know you're facing this and have obviously come through a, a traumatic birth is that we're it's almost this exception that it's like, you know, but you're women and that's fine. And I felt like loads of the, the conversations that I was listening to were people of an older generation saying, sure, we went and had our babies by ourselves. But we had 12 yeah, of them by yeah. ourselves. But like, but but it's, it's, not, not, it's not what no, it's about no. anymore. It's about whoever your person is, your mom, your sister, your partner, your husband, your wife, whoever that person is, you deserve to have them with you. And it was only when I said it out loud on, on Instagram, Loads of women then went, I, mm. I hear you. And I the power of someone saying, I hear you was like, you know, but then again, it was like head down, terrified of losing her, terrified of the pregnancy, not getting anywhere. And then in December and November, the fear, the absolute horrific fear of labor. I wasn't afraid of giving birth. I was afraid of leaving my husband in a car park. Because On your own. Yeah. I had seen women clutching the people they love holding a bag going and them reassuring saying I'll be there but there's no guarantees that they'll be there and then we got through our our, Joey was with me for for Sadie coming into the world and then that horrible feeling that I had her all wrapped up and we it's the perfect pandemic picture because I have a face mask on me I have my baby wrapped up and I, I just look lost because I was like can can he come with me just to the room just to settle me in and they were like no and he said goodbye at the lifts and I said goodbye to him and he said I'll see you. and he was like I'll see you tomorrow which was 
going to be like the guts of 20 hours later. It's awful. And I think back to when I had Joan and I had to go to high dependency and they extended the hours for Tony because they could see my husband, Tony, they could see my mental health was completely deteriorating. Wait, yeah. Yeah. And so he was able to stay till 11. Maybe I shouldn't say this on record. And Sue, you're having your second baby. How are you feeling? Um, yeah, like I, I suppose my backstory, which led me to this was, um, I had a miscarriage in 2019, um, and which was quite difficult. I, it was 11 weeks and it was a missed miscarriage. So I, I'd lost the baby at eight weeks and I went in for one of those horrible, horrible appointments where they say to you, there's no heartbeat and it's the worst. I, I just, I'll never get over looking at the screen and there was this kind of big black hole where my womb was and then a tiny little thing in the corner that hadn't grown and so that was a really horrible experience and I was really lucky my husband was with me through all of that um, and then my first um, baby with Julia when I gave birth um, I had a forceps delivery Um, they think I had a hemorrhage they're still they're still putting it down to a hemorrhage but they're not sure Um, I had a bad reaction to fluids my face all swelled up and um, I passed out in the bathrooms after I went for a shower. Yeah, like I kind of felt like I ticked all the boxes. I remember somebody from a diabetic clinic coming up to me and saying, my God, you you definitely know how to bring the drama for a baby. I was like, yeah, pretty much. But I was very ill afterwards. They thought I had a reaction to the diphene, so they weren't giving me painkillers for two days after I'd had a forceps delivery, which was not easy. So um, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't look after her. Um, I just wasn't able. And I was like that. My mental health was really suffering. Like I remember begging my husband not to leave me one night, please. And that, like, I mean, that was the before COVID came in. And I was like, please don't leave me. I can't look at. And I really don't know what I would have done if he wasn't there during the day because I just couldn't lift her. I couldn't even lift her to feed her because I was in so much pain. Um, they had to give me two pl- blood transfusions then afterwards. So I was kind of hooked up to blood for most of my visit to the redonda um but like like you were saying Alison like if he wasn't there I I don't know what I would have done so that's the thing as well like the day that Joan arrived I had four or five IVs in both arm I was in high dependency and I remember the one moment when she was crying and this midwife came along and was like she's crying I'm like I I I can hear that that's the one thing that's still working I couldn't, I physically couldn't reach my arm over to get her out of the cot beside me to breastfeed her because my arms were tight. Like she helped me and she was probably about it. But that's what you're saying. You physically couldn't lift her. Yeah, I just could. I just couldn't. And without his help, I don't know if I would have got through that. I, I remember distinctly really being really upset one of the days. And one of the midwives said to me, oh, it's OK to get emotional on the third day. And I really thought at that point I was really going to throw her at the window. I was like, this is what it's about. <laughs> but um, I he had to go and see the head of the ward in the end to actually say to them, look, she cannot look after the baby. She can't get out of bed. And he was like, I know her. She's not. She's been through a lot like she wouldn't. She wouldn't just say that like she just can't get out at night like it was taking ages to get to her and she cried and she was on that thing where she would like be awake all night and sleep all day which is so fun but um this pregnancy has just been I feel like I've been on my own I feel like Mick hasn't been a part of it not true no fault of his own Um, I had to go into the six side of six week scan as well just to make sure that everything was okay that was on my own 12 week scan on my own um the only one that he's been to is the 20 week scan um until a couple of weeks ago we thought he wasn't even going to be allowed in for visiting hours um i have gestational diabetes so i'm in a diabetic clinic once a month he hasn't been to any of those appointments 
I had to have a scan on the baby's heart because there's a higher risk of something going wrong if you have diabetes. He wasn't allowed to go to any of those appointments. So it's it's just been if it's it's a horrible thing for a family because he's looking after Julia at this stage because I'm 35 weeks and can't really lift her that much. But I feel like I've gone through so much of this pregnancy by myself and he's just been completely removed from the process. And that's what like so many thousands of women have been faced with in the last, you know, year and a half. And it just it seems so cruel. It seems so wrong. And especially when you see other things opening up and there's no restrictions on numbers and all of that. But you spoke to somebody who shared her story uh, recently that's going to you know feature in this this episode one. Yeah, um, I will say for people who are going to listen to this, this is a very difficult story to listen to. It's Emma Carroll. Um, she runs the In Our Shoes COVID pregnancy um, Instagram page where they ask loads of people to just send in their stories, which has become this amazing forum for people to share things that have happened to them, which didn't really exist before. And some of the stories are awful. They're very harrowing and Hers, her own story, which just happened three weeks ago, she had a miscarriage three weeks ago, is very painful. She had a very difficult delivery for her first baby, Liv, and this this miscarriage was just heartbreaking. Um, I like when we were recording this, me and Dee, who's doing the recording in the background, uh, were both crying for the last twenty minutes of it. It's a very difficult thing to listen to, and it just felt like on top of all the restrictions and everything else that's happening, and people being removed. She had no compassion shown to her. I really felt like there was no compassion shown to, to her for what had happened. Um, it's British, like she's so articulate and she tells the story so, so well. But it's it's a heartbreaking listen. It's a very difficult one to listen to. A quick warning. The story we are about to hear may be distressing for some listeners. If you'd like to stay with us but feel that content relating to miscarriage, baby loss or traumatic delivery might be triggering for you, We've included the relevant timestamps in the show notes so you can skip ahead. My name is Emma Carroll. I'm a campaigner with the Better Maternity Care campaign for over a year now. Um, I'm a mother to one, Liv, who was born at the beginning of lockdown in April 2020. And she's really what inspired me to, to go on this campaign journey. I run a page called In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy on Facebook and Instagram, which has built a community where people can come together and share their stories in their own words of how they've been affected by these restrictions. Um, I'm also a scientist and farmer, so I do that full time and campaign on the side. Um, and I'm, I'm busy, busy, but... It's been one of the most privileged experiences to be able to speak on behalf of all the people who have been affected. And I know exactly the depth of what they're going through. So it's been a great privilege. I mean, I remember when I had my daughter and when I was pregnant and I weirdly, I kind of felt like I was having a girl. And I remember when she was born thinking she has been brought into a country that is so much more liberal than it was when I was born. I was born in the year that the last Magdalene laundry shut down. I was born when divorce wasn't... um, you know, uh, legal. I was born when we didn't have abortion access. I was born when we didn't have marriage equality. So many things that my daughter comes into a much more open society with. And the horror when I realized that this is how she would be treated. My experience with my daughter and the isolation after, and to be honest, I probably was suffering quite badly from postnatal depression, but obviously I was totally alone at the time. Couldn't even get a doctor's appointment to even confirm that. So, but looking back now, I'd say I most definitely was. And yeah, it kind of put me off having kids for life. (laughs) I said, no, I cannot subject myself to that again. 
I am worth more than that. And frankly, I don't think I'd survive that treatment again. And the subsequent, what we went through, I just couldn't do it. And of course that changed. <laughs> so my partner was kind of heartbroken. He's, he's just fantastic. He's this big lump of a country man and he's just gorgeous. Like he's a man that's made to be a dad and made to have a house full of kids. And that's what he always wanted and planned. And when I told him last year that Gary, I can't do this again because it will kill me. I think it broke a part of him off. You know, I don't think he really realized for him, it's totally different. Like, you know, he went through it. He came out, baby's here, Emma's here. Everything seems fine. But obviously the impact lasted for me much longer. So around, what are we now? So in the middle of summer this year, we kind of decided, look, the house is a bit too quiet. You know, it's pretty loud with Liv, but it could be a bit louder. And how nice would it be to see them outside playing together? So we tried and we're lucky enough we got pregnant in the first try. Same with our daughter. We just, my partner has to look at me. I keep joking. We're sheep farmers and I keep saying, oh, I'll have to bring you into the mark to sell you as a good ram because like you're just class. <laughs> that might sicken some people anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we were absolutely over the moon. Like, I mean, chuffed. Like the, when we found out that we were pregnant with my daughter, um, she was very much intended and planned, but we were kind of like, oh God, like we didn't think that would happen so quick. And like, are we too young to be parents and will we raise them right? Like the panic. And I suppose this time around, I was like, no, no, we can do this. We can do this. And I was so excited, as was he. Um, so I'm a nervous customer in the first trimester. So we went for a six week scan so I could make sure everything was in the right place and everything was perfect. We saw a perfect heartbeat. And um, so that relieved some, you know, some stress. And then I, you know, I was violently sick for the entire thing. So I was like, this is a grand healthy pregnancy. As you hear, you know, it's a good sign. So one day or for a couple of days, my symptoms dropped off. And at eight and a half weeks, I went for another scan. And again, there's a perfect baby, perfect heartbeat, no problems. So I was like, oh, we are definitely in the clear now. We are definitely clear. And then three weeks ago, we went at 10 weeks for, we did um, NIPT, which is non-invasive prenatal testing. And it just assesses for any, if there's any genetic issues, just so we could know what we were dealing with. Um, And it's just a nice peace of mind thing for us. So we went in, I threw up in the car before we went in for the scan because I was still violently sick with morning sickness um, around the clock really with it. And we thought there's no way something could be wrong. We've seen a heartbeat twice, perfect heartbeat. So we walked up and chill as you like, walked in, sat down, got the scan. My partner sat shoulder to shoulder with me. The sonographer was saying, oh, you've had scans. You know, we're young. You know, there's not going to be a problem here. And she put the wand to my belly and I just knew straight away that something was wrong. Um, So the sonographer was sitting there and she, I could see the way she was moving the wand and the way she was kind of looking, she was very silent. And my partner, he knew as well. And I just said, that doesn't look the best, does it? And I think I had gone into shock mode. Like, you know, I, was, I don't know. I just went into shock. And she said, I, I'm sorry. I don't think there's a heartbeat. And I said, that's okay. That's okay. Don't worry. I don't know why I was consoling her. I was like, don't worry about it. It's fine. These things happen. And um, she said, look, look, um, we'll, we'll do another an internal scan just to double check. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I knew it wouldn't like, you know, I wasn't going to see a heartbeat, but I kind of did it for my partner because I think in his mind he was clinging on to the fact that it might be OK. So we did that. And of course, there was no heartbeat. And we were sent on our way with a report that said miss miscarriage and told to book in with the EPAU and they'd look after us. So we went down to the car park and I think I definitely was just in utter shock. It absolutely had not hit me. Um, my partner was like, are you OK? Are you OK? And I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Let's call your mom and tell her. 
Um, so I rang her as calm as you like. And I was like, yeah, the baby's gone. Um, yeah, yeah, it's awful. And that was kind of it. So I hung up the phone then. And as we drove home, it was about an hour away from where we were. It did start to hit me and I just bawled my eyes out. And I'm so, I don't know how I would have reacted if he wasn't there. But I'm so grateful that I didn't have to go down to a car or on the phone and tell him that our baby was gone. Because if I had made it to the next week to my booking appointment, I would have been alone. And I would have had to break his heart. And I don't know if I could do that. Because as I say, he's a lovable, affable lump of a man. And he's the best person in the world. And he wanted this baby so bad as much as I did. And I just couldn't break him like that. So anyway... I came home and it really hit me then and you know, I remember driving into the driveway and we bought a swing set for our daughter a few weeks beforehand and we got one with three swings on it and we'd always thought we'd have at least three kids and I remember my partner's a big child and he was saying uh you know maybe we could get the bigger one and I was like no Gary like we only need one swing for one kid and he's like oh well you never know like you never know we might have more and it'd be nice to have them on it together and as soon as I saw the swing when I came around the corner I just burst into tears because that was a whole future. I had the whole thing planned out. We'd have the baby in March. She'd be a lovely summer baby. You know, we'd have her outside playing with her sister. It was going to be great. So it hit me quite hard when we came home. And the next day, anyway, I rang the EPAU and I sent in my report as required because you can't just walk into the EPAU. For those unfortunate enough to know, it's a referral by your GP or the hospital or whoever. Um, You can't just make an appointment. So I sent them over my appointment or my uh, sonography report and I was given an appointment for, I think it was the next day, the Thursday. So we went in anyway. And I said, I remember on the phone to the woman and my better maternity care cath came on because I was like, okay, the HPSC guidelines are there. I am not being separated from my partner. There is no way. Absolutely not. Not to be callous, but our baby's dead. Like there's no way they could do that to us. Absolutely not. Every part of the guidelines from allowing people into the EPAU to allowing, you know, people in, in instances of compassionate care. How can you separate two grieving parents like that when you know that there's something wrong? You just can't. So I rang anyway and I said, look, um, I, I would like to stay with my partner. And she said, oh, well, he can't come into the waiting room because of, you know, space constraints. And I said, absolutely fine. Totally understand. Um, I'm going to wait in the car park, though, with them. And you can call me in when you're ready. OK. And she said, sorry, no, I can't do that. And I just I nearly broke down at this point. And I said, do you mind explaining why? And she said, well, just in the interest of time management, we prefer people to wait in the waiting rooms alone. Um, and then, you know, you can, your partner can come in, but we wait. We would like you to wait alone so that we're not, you know, in time management. And I just like that phrase will never leave me. Like I said to her on the phone, my baby's gone. And in the interest of time management, I was being separated from the father of my child, the person that I love the only person that I feel safe with. And I just couldn't get over it. Now, ordinarily, I'd be a bit more outspoken, but I was broken at this point and I, I physically could not. And I just said, fine. And I hung up. I just, I couldn't. So we went in the next day and I kind of, when she said time management, I was like, okay, I'm going to go in. I'm going to sit in the EPAU. Time management means I'm going to be there for a minute by myself and then he's coming in with me you know I just have to get through that first minute maybe five minutes and just hold my stuff together so we walked up to the door at the coom I couldn't go back to Hollow Street after what happened so I thought we might be looked after in the coom we walked up to the door and I've been told as well that he'd be given a badge a check-in so you're supposed to do a COVID check-in so we walked up to the the desk and I said I'm here for the EPAU 
And the midwife there said, okay, that's fine. Now he can go outside and wait till you're called in. And I said, yeah, that's great. Okay. And he wasn't given a badge, um, which panicked me because I walked down to the EPAU and all these scenarios were going through my head of, um, you know, and we'd asked at the desk, where's his badge? And she said, oh, it'll be fine. He can just walk back in. And I remember just thinking like, what if she changes shift? What if somebody else comes in? Is he going to have to stand there and fight and argue, you know, as to why he should be allowed in? So anyway, I left him, he big red, tearful eyes on him. And he walked back out the door like, <laughs> like he was useless. And he absolutely, he deserved to be there. And I walked down and I'll never forget because there's very little information actually available online in terms of anything really in maternity care in Ireland. And so I was relying, as a lot of people do, on online fora. And I remember seeing on one that, you know, the reason that the EPAU has limited hours is because it's in a sensitive location in the hospital, you know, and it makes more sense for people so that they don't have to be exposed to too many things. And I'll never forget walking past or out of the reception and being told, I was told to turn right. And I turned right and straight into a packed antenatal waiting room clinic. And I just nearly died like I've never, I can't even describe the feeling. Like I had geared myself up, secured myself in the knowledge that I'd be safe. They'd look after me. I'd only have to do a minute alone without him. That's all I'd have to hold myself together for. And yet here I was split up from him with no warning whatsoever that I'd have to walk past these gorgeous bumps that were supposed to be mine in a few weeks all by myself. So I walked through, I, I was practically keeping my eyes closed. I nearly ran. I don't know how I didn't run into anybody. And I walked into the, the EPAU waiting room then and that was fine. I was told to take a seat. And eventually after about 45 minutes, I was called. So I was trying my very best. Everybody in the EPAU waiting room seemed very calm and coherent. So I was like, okay, at least I'm the only one here with bad news. I must be the only one whose baby has died. Like, that's good, you know. That, and I was like, okay, Emma, don't get upset because you don't want to upset these poor women who might get bad news, but hopefully will get brilliant news. You don't want to upset them and stress them out. So I remember just sitting there and I was like, okay, keep it together, keep it together. That was my mantra going through my mind, keep it together. My poor partner was outside trying to WhatsApp me and console me and say, it's okay, it's okay, everything's fine. And by the end of the 45 minutes, just the tears were pouring down behind my mask. I couldn't, couldn't do it. Um, and I was called in and eventually I was called in and I walked into the room and the doctor was there and a student was there as well, which is fine, you know. And as soon as I walked over the threshold, I was crying silently like, and I said, look, um, I'm going to call my partner now so he can come in. That was the first thing I said. They didn't even say hello to me. I said, I'm calling my partner. He's going to come in. And she said, oh, well, okay. As if it was a nuisance and as if, you know, why are you doing that? which I thought was odd. So anyway, I rang him and I said, look, I don't really want to do anything until my partner is here. Can we please wait? And she said, oh, well, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. So I sat down and she was like, okay, so how far along are you? And I was like, oh, just over 10 weeks, all this. And she said, are you still, or do you have any bleeding? And I said, no, no bleeding, no pain. And she said, do you have any pregnancy symptoms? I said, yeah, full on. I said, it's, it's been really difficult. You know, I'm still vomiting and it's quite hard. And she said, oh, well, that's a great sign then. And I'm sitting there in the chair. Like, huh? Part of me was like, okay, like, did the sonographer make a mistake? Is uh, Can something happen that the baby is okay? And then part of me was like, my baby's gone. Like, my baby's gone, you know? 
Um, and that nearly broke me. And then literally I checked the timestamps on my phone afterwards, 30 seconds later, my partner walked into the room. So I couldn't have even been afforded the 30 seconds. And of course he missed this entire interaction beforehand. So anyway, she hopped up or sorry, he didn't walk in before she said, um, okay, we're going to start the scan now. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I'm not doing that without my partner. And she said, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry. We can start and he can come in and you know, whenever. And I said, I'm not doing it without him. And I started crying at that point. I was shaking. I was visibly distressed. And I remember the doctor looking at me and in fairness to the student, the student spoke up and said, it's okay. Don't worry. We'll wait for him. And I just, I could hug you. Thank you um, for that kindness, that tiny kindness, which meant the world. So anyway, uh, he came in, like I say, 30 seconds after I called him in the first place. And we went to begin the scan. And at that point I started to get really upset. I mean, my part, I didn't really want to go in at all. I just wanted them to send me the medication to the pharmacy. I didn't want the journey. I didn't want to see a scan again. I just wanted it done. And I remember the day after we found out, my partner woke up and he said, I had a dream last night that the baby was alive and everything was fine. And I really went in and did that scan for him just so he could get that closure himself. So we went to start the scan and I was shaking, crying, silently crying now. And I, I remember my partner sitting there holding my shoulder and the doctor goes, what's wrong? What's the problem? And at that point, I literally, <laughs> it was a, like a war towel that came out of me. And I said, uh, my baby's dead and I just would like to go home now, please. And she looked and said, what do you mean? And I, I was bawling my eyes out at that point. And my partner said, did you not read the referral that we had to send to you? And she goes, we didn't get a referral. And as she said that, she opened my folder in front of me. And on the first page was the page with the picture of the scan and the words underneath it saying appearance of a missed miscarriage. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, and she said, look, this is hard for us too. And I just, thanks. I go, okay, that makes me feel better. You know, I'm not, I'm no doubt the staff on the ground are having a very hard time, but you know, it would have been easier if you hadn't read my file. Oh, so she did the scan. And of course, uh, despite my hopes that something had reincarnated the baby inside, nothing, you know, the baby was gone. And I, I opted for medical management and I, I took the pill or, you know, I took the, the mifepristone, I think it is. So you're given the mifepristone and then you're given four uh, misoprostol tablets and a second dose of them in case they don't work for at home, in case anybody's wondering. So we were sent on our way home. We were thrown a booklet for the Miscarriage Association of Ireland um, and good luck to you. And I remember she actually gave me a pregnancy test, said, take this in two weeks. Um, you know, we shouldn't have, we don't really want to see you again. So I was like, fine. I ran out of the place. I mean, my poor partner has a bad ankle on him at the minute. And I remember, it's, it's, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's the only bit of humor that I can find in all this. But I remember the door opening, me literally bolting like a scared cat all the way back through the antenatal clinic um, waiting room. My eyes closed, ran outside the door and I heaved in sobs. Because I remember before we even walked out of the room, I was like, keep it together, Emma. There's women out there that are vulnerable. You know, there's women in the EPAU that don't want to see you upset. And there's also women in the antenatal clinic that don't want to see that either. So yeah, I, as I say, ran out the door, broke down into sobs. I mean, I was heaving and I'm not an emotional person by any sense of the imagination. And my poor partner hobbled out behind me a minute later. And he just gave me the biggest hug and he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He said, I'm sorry you had to be in there alone for all that time. So anyway, we got in the car and we came home and 
No, it's pretty, pretty bleak. So you have to wait uh, 24 to 48 hours before you can take the dose of the mesoprostol, the cytotec, which induces labor, so to speak, um, and helps your body expel whatever's in your uterus. So I took them with my partner the next day and we got through that and it was a really tough night, but I'm so like it worked, which I was incredibly grateful for. I remember panicking as well that because I was terrified that if they didn't work, I didn't have a second dose to back me up. Um, which was terrifying because I didn't want to go back to the EPAU at all or the or the hospital full stop. So anyway, it worked at home and I was fortunate that I passed the baby and my partner was here and it was grand. And the next day then we didn't really know what to do. We didn't want to do nothing. And, you know, it, it just didn't feel right. So the next day we went out and we bought a cherry blossom tree. And that Saturday evening, my partner and I stood um, and we held hands and we buried our baby together under the tree and um, so yeah so we buried the trees planted um in view of our house so when you're sitting at the kitchen table you can see the trees so that they'll always have a seat at the table with us that was what i wanted um so yeah it was difficult um so yeah it's just one of those things, but just having to go through the EPAU in the way that we did just made it that much more horrendous. There was no need to separate us at all. There was just no need. There was no need to treat me with such unkindness that you couldn't even read my file. The indignity of it. You know, it was just awful. Me having to swallow my tears so that I wouldn't upset other women it was awful. You know, it's just everything about it is wrong. Um, so yeah, that was three weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago today, I passed the baby at home and three weeks ago tomorrow we buried them. So it's been very difficult and I keep not to be too graphic for people, but I'll never forget the weight of the baby in my hands as I pass them and everything with it. And I just so much want to go out and grab them from where we laid them and just hold them in my arms and feel that weight again. Like I just, it's awful. So anyway, two weeks post EPAU. <laughs> As advised, I took this pregnancy test. And again, anybody who's been to the EPAU will know that they give you a special kind of one. So it's a higher threshold one than your typical supermarket one. So I took that. And lo and behold, it was a faint positive. And I was like, oh, sweet God. I nearly started shaking because the thoughts going back to them. Just no, no. So I rang them anyway. And the crux of it was I had to go back in. And my partner, he was slightly panicking. I knew everything was fine, but he, in his head thought that I was going to die of sepsis or something even though I was perfectly fine uh, so I went in again for him happily you know it didn't, not in any coercive way just in a way that he deserves that reassurance that the woman he loves is okay um so we went in and sat down and I will note that me being me um I wrote a complaint to the coom that week that I took the test so for anybody who doesn't know you can make complaints about hospital services. You can make complaints about any medical care that you access and it will not affect your care. And you should do that. I know exactly how difficult it is. Believe me, because I did the same after my daughter and it was traumatizing. Um, but you should do it and do it. Like I, can, I can't impress on people enough. So I basically in my complaint said the location of the EPAU is atrocious and a bit of warning would be nice as to the location. You know, even if you can't move it, you can surely take five seconds to tell me um and also that the doctor couldn't even read my file so anyway when I was on the phone to the EPAU for the second appointment I was told that I'd get a senior consultant and I was like oh god you know they definitely read my complaint so 
I went in anyway and it was upsetting again. Um, I said to them on the phone, actually, oh, and I also complained in my first complaint that in the interest of time management, I couldn't even stand with uh, my partner in the car park. I had to wait alone. So when I was on the phone the second time, I said, I'm waiting with my partner this time. And she said, well, you can't do that in the waiting room. I said, I absolutely understand and appreciate that. I'm waiting in the car park and you can call me. I'll go in and check in. I'm going back out to my partner thereafter. Um, And she's like, oh, well, look, if it's going to be distressing, that should be no problem then. And I kind of felt like saying, no new guidance has come into effect since my last interaction with you. So why did you feel the need to separate us then? You know, if it's, oh, anyway, we went in and went through the appointment. Unfortunately, everything was fine. And I got to air some of my grievances with the consultant, which was nice. But the whole experience was just completely demoralizing and undignified. Such a lack of compassion. It was unbelievable. Um, yeah, and I just would never wish it on anyone. I mean, we went through the ringer with my first daughter. It put me off kids. I said, look, we'll try again. I got pregnant. I actually had a home birth book with one of those mystical HSE midwives because there's so few of them. I was delighted. I was so excited. And then to have to go through this was just the pits. So anybody out there who's gone through or going through similar, my heart is with you. Um, and I know exactly what you're going through. So that's me and my maternity experience. <laughs> And that was Emma Carroll's story. And thank you so much to her for sharing that so fresh after such a massive event happening in her life. And Linda Kelly uh, from Better Maternity Care and also founder of Women Ascend has joined the podcast now. Uh, Linda, thanks for joining us. Thanks a million, Alison, for we, having me. Not at all. Can we talk about some of the main issues that Emma's story brought up? Because it is affecting, her story would echo a lot of other women's stories around the country. Yeah, so I think there's there's probably a few different aspects to it. I think the first is this issue of compliance that we keep hearing the HSC and hospitals talk about. So the first time there was actually a huge outpouring from women around their experiences with pregnancy loss in particular was last October in 2020. There was actually a huge um, influx of calls. I think it was Joe Duffy at the time. And straight away, you know, everybody was moved by the stories that people had shared, particularly women who'd been through multiple pregnancy losses throughout. 2020 and found it incredibly difficult and so the HSC kind of said they would look at it and there was this sort of very quiet softening of the rules in some places under the guise of compassionate care. What we have now found is that over the last number of months as we have moved through this campaign and guidelines have become more prominent is that and I, it's an audio recording, so I don't know how I do the inverted commas piece, you know, like there's compliance, but it's not really compliance. So what you have is, for example, in Cork, where people where the hospital says to the HSE, we're compliant with your guidelines around pregnancy loss. But when you actually go to the hospital and you're worried that you're experiencing pregnancy loss and maybe you're having a particularly bad bleed or something like that, they will make you wait on your own with your partner outside of the hospital until you are scanned by their staff, until you are told by their staff on your own that it is a pregnancy loss situation. That's not what the National HSC guidelines intend. And it's certainly not what I think any of us who have any element of humanity on us would consider an appropriate form of care for women who are going through this situation. So I think that's the first kind of big piece that it brings up is that 
you know, this this back and forth around compliance is really problematic, actually. Like, it's not the solution to this issue around partner restrictions. The solution is to move to a situation where we have pre-pandemic access for one nominated partner across your maternity journey. Like, no ifs, no buts. That's what we need at this stage of the pandemic. And then there's just the hugely heartbreaking piece of it, Alison. You know, like, this is trauma that people are experiencing and I don't see anything coming out from the HSC about how they plan to support people and how they plan to address it. And Linda, if we could talk about as well in Emma's particular story, and later on in the podcast, we're going to be talking to healthcare professionals as well, because there's such a huge pressure on them as well. But in Emma's story, the thing, so much of it was like, all of it was harrowing, but so much of it really was striking. And one thing was the fact that the very basics of her file not being read properly was something that horrified me to hear yeah and it's um like there's just so many small things that are falling through the cracks um when i was pregnant with my second baby it was just before the pandemic i went for my booking appointment and i went in and the midwife said just kind of looked at me and she said oh you know you had a really traumatic time the last time I was really surprised. I was like, wow, like, what is my file? Like, that's true. But I was like, you know, I'm surprised that you know that, you know. And so I started telling her the story and kind of going through it because I was very nervous about coming in for a second pregnancy. And she got this really strange look in her face. And she went, oh, okay. And she went, I actually have to tell you, and this is going to be upsetting for people now because I'm going to reference infant loss. And she said, oh, your file actually indicates that your baby died. Now, I am not in that situation. My daughter is alive and well, but that was the level of mistake. And then it was the case of, oh, like, oh, that's just a small admin error. I was horrified for weeks and weeks afterwards. I just couldn't, the longer I kind of was living with it. And I think, you know, it was actually Dr. Peter Boylan in one of his media interviews kind of said, you know, a lot of staff are desensitized to a lot of these situations because loss is actually very, very prevalent in the maternity services. And I think there's definitely a piece missing whereby, you know, we really need to support people who are experiencing loss in a lot more holistic way in the maternity services because it's not adequate at the moment. And I'm sure staff feel that as well, is that they're not able to provide an adequate service because so much of the services are under-resourced. So many times you hear it, and I know for me personally, Linda, I had a miscarriage and I had to go in and have my go to theatre um, and go through the ERPC. But when I came out and was coming around, uh, so I was coming out of the anaesthetic a little bit hazy. So it was a mixture of hearing a baby beside me crying behind the curtain because the lady had just gone in for a section. So she was holding her baby and her husband obviously was with her. So this was just pre-pandemic in the December before the pandemic. And the theatre nurse was discussing her pregnancy with the other uh, midwife that was there and I can still remember her name and how many weeks pregnant she was and what her due date was and that like that stuck with me because I remember lying there my body kind of just shaking and Mm. my last thought before I went under the anesthetic was that everything in my body wanted me to scream no and stop and just leave this baby please don't take it out that was all I wanted to do and the anesthesia was lovely um, and my consultant was incredible but when I came out I woke to a baby crying and so many women that I've spoken to that when you're in that recovery area 
is that where women are coming out from sections, having their babies and just those tiny little And Suzanne bits. as well, that story with Emma, where she was most concerned about upsetting um, anyone when she walked through for yeah. that procedure, um, you know, women that were pregnant or waiting for appointments. And it's just that the owner shouldn't be on the individual to be worrying about about that. Linda, can we ask you as well, uh, what, you know, anyone who's listened to this podcast, where are some points of contact for help that people can go to? I suppose a point of contact for people where they're finding it difficult to advocate for themselves within the maternity services. One of um, the people who supports our campaign is Liz Kelly from the Irish Maternity Support Network, and she can absolutely help support people because oftentimes navigating the system can be very, very difficult, particularly if you have a complex case. Um, and you and you need to advocate for yourself and you're on your own in those appointments as well. It can be very, very difficult. So that's definitely one I would signpost to. So ones that I found were really good was pregnancy and infantloss.ie. Fela Khan are there as well for stillbirth um, and a little lifetime uh, are there as well. They're great support. But even if they can't particularly help you with what you're going through, they will they'll navigate you along that journey um, to, to people who you are able to support. And there is people to talk mm. to, like say it out loud. I think that's definitely one of the things with pregnancy loss. Um, I'll never forget, like, when I found out I was pregnant with my first baby, um, I was told I wouldn't ever conceive naturally because I have polycystic ovary syndrome. So it was a complete and utter shock to find out I was pregnant. And we had planned our wedding. And the baby and the wedding were due around the same time. And we were like, what are we going to do? Like, we have to move one of these things and one can be moved and one can't um and the amount of people who were like don't tell anybody you're pregnant it's bad luck if you move the hotel you know all of this stuff because it turned out I was only six weeks pregnant and but we had to do everything and I think you know this whole thing of not talking to people until you're past the 12 week mark it just really adds a stigma because as I said to a lot of people at the time I was like well if I if something does happen and I do lose the baby. I was like, I will want the support of my friends. I will want the support of my family to talk about it. So I think as a country, we kind of really need to move to a lot more, you know, getting away just from some of these kinds of older kind of mentalities around pregnancy. And that's definitely why we're here and we want you to share your stories. And I know for me, it eases when you say it out loud. But actually, the most thing I found from from pregnancy loss is that when you say it out loud a woman will say to you that happened to me too and when you hear that it's nice to have somebody to say it because then you don't feel as alone and that helps we'd like to thank you very much for listening to this the first episode of birthing a nation and if you would like to get in touch with us and share your stories we would love to hear from you maternity at goloudnow.com and before we go we do want to say thank you to the incredible frontline healthcare workers that have worked so hard throughout that time, all this time. And we haven't forgotten that. And we'll talk to them, get their stories. So we do want to mark exactly. how thankful we are exactly. uh, in this space as well. And that's why across the series, we will be speaking to people who work frontline healthcare and maternity services in Ireland, face, uh, you know, supporting women in their most vulnerable and challenging times. And we will be speaking to them as well. Ultimately, the only people who should be held to account here are the government and as always we've asked today's guests what they'd say to our Taoiseach and our Health Minister Stephen Donnelly if they could and we leave you with the thoughts of Emma Carroll on that today. So I would start with Minister Stephen Donnelly and what I would say to him is how can you sit there and let this happen under your remit? How can you sit there and put out posts with buzzwords about caring about women's health and you have left us to suffer alone 
howling for help, totally alone. How do you sleep at night? Firstly, that sounds a bit harsh. Why haven't you stepped in? I realize clinicians are a law unto themselves and they should be left to make clinical decisions. Why haven't you stepped in to demand the risk information that they have to see if these um, measures are proportionate? When are you going to do that? What is it going to take? Is somebody going to have to, like, are we we going to have to deal with a situation where women are losing their lives because they can't cope with the impacts of the trauma? Like, what is it going to take? To the Taoiseach as well, I'm sure he's a well-meaning man, but sound bites in the doll mean nothing to us. You know what's happening and it's on to you to do it. Just do it. We have a woeful history of treating women horrifically in this country. And never in my worst nightmares did I think that in 2021, myself and my daughter would live in a system that would subject them to such violent trauma. So we need to do something. You need to do something now. You needed to do it months ago. But now, any time now, lads, will do. Um, and just step up and do it. Um, <laughs> so just from a government perspective, we know the damage that's been done to women in this country um, and we can make it better. And I think what we need to do is listen to women. We have a chronic problem in this country where we listen to women and we just dismiss them as if they're nothing. There are women crying out in pain, crying out in agony, begging for help, begging for support. And yet we're brushing them off as if it's nothing and just telling them to get on with it. And it's just not good enough. The legacy of trauma and the impact that it's had on families is going to last for generations. Um, And I would just ask every member of government to please stand with us, stand up and support those that need it right now, please. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bauer Media Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D. Reddy with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.